We're glad that uh, you showed up, made it out this morning to celebrate uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically his birth. It's a wonderful time of year, isn't it? I mean, of course, you're all, everybody's out shopping. If you went shopping, I mean, this past weekend, probably you, it was, I'm sure everybody was losing their mind. Did anybody go shopping at all? I thank the good Lord that I did not. Amen. It's a good time, though. It's a great time of year, and we're glad to see everybody and, and really come into the house of God and set our hearts uh, toward Jesus and put our hearts in the right direction and think about all of the wonderful things that uh, Jesus has done for us. You know, every year, I've been, I've been, I've been a stu student of the Bible now for about 15 years, and every single year, I was telling Matt on Wednesday night, he was, he was preaching my message on Wednesday night to the youth. I come to youth on Wednesday night and get fed, you know what I'm talking about, but... But uh, I came and I was talking to him about how every single year I'm more amazed by what I read in Scripture. Like it never gets old and I keep continue to learn something new and I continue to find something new. And Jesus just gets more beautiful to me every year. And as I'm reading those stories, I look at like especially the nativity scene that we, that's all so familiar and the wise men and the shepherds and all this. And, and you're kind of unpacking that. And you see how God like draws people to this moment in, in some weird ways sometimes. And like I don't know about your background. I don't know where you came from. But there were some things that happened in my life that, that the Lord drew me to Jesus in some really weird ways, to be honest. I mean, I remember like there, there was just, just alcohol and depression and, and a wreck. I had a wreck that really started stirring my heart, to, heart toward the Lord. And then I went to college and some atheist professors and a book called The Catcher and the Riots got nothing to do with God. Those things worked in my heart to slowly open me up to this reality of Jesus. And I'm looking at this story, and, I, and I don't, like I said, I don't know about your, your background. Maybe you went to church, maybe you heard a, a preacher preach a message, and it just opened your heart. I mean, I think that's pretty standard for most people, the Word of God going forth, and they hear it, and their hearts are convicted by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit draws them to a place of repentance, and that's an amazing thing. But everything in our life, ultimately, I believe when God is moving, He's drawing us to something. He's drawing us to this reality of who Jesus is. And if you look at that story, I want to talk specifically about how God drew some, some guys that we like to refer to as wise men or magi. And it's a story that we read, and, and you know, on my mantle, we've even got the nativity scene and everything. And, and I'm like, you know, that's not completely biblically accurate, but it's a good-looking nativity scene. And, uh, and well, so, so, but, but you think about this, and I want to talk this morning to you about the Star of Bethlehem because the way that God chose to draw these men, the fact that he drew them even in the first place based on who they were is amazing. But how he drew them is even more amazing. And I want to unpack to you the star of Bethlehem this morning. So if you would begin with me in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 2. And here's what it reads. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, literally magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now if you would, I'd just appreciate it if you pray with me real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, this morning I'm, I'm just thoughtful about people that, uh, that would love to be here and, and couldn't be here. Beverly Nelson and, and Tim Wilmer who are dealing with illness right now, Father, and and. And, and struggling just through this time. Father, I pray for strength for those that are sick, that are afflicted, uh, Lord, that have lost loved ones and are grieving during this holiday season. And I pray, Lord God, that you would flood their hearts with your peace, with your goodness. And I pray this morning that you would anoint your word by your spirit, God, that we would hear what you, ha you have to say to us and we would be changed and transformed by your word. 
And we bless each and every listener this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you, came to this, when you come to this place in Scripture, the Magi show up at Jesus' birth. And it's really interesting because by this time, you've already got a lot of names for Jesus. And we were singing some of those names this morning. But by this time, Jesus has already been born and he has been called Savior, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man, the Prince of Peace, the King of the Jews, the Word made flesh, and Emmanuel, God with us. Now that's a crazy series of titles. And, and, he, and he's called the King of the Jews in the book of Matthew. And Matthew brings out a little bit of something different in the story than what we read last week in Luke. Because if you remember last week, we talked about how that Jesus was born in the time of Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was the emperor over the known world. And they called him the son of God, the divine emperor, the bringer of peace. They gave him all of these titles and actually said that his, his birthday was the thing that would institute peace for all and that this was the gospel or the good news. But see, what Luke was doing is saying, no, 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 that, that is the false emperor. That's not the true king. The true king is this baby that was born in Bethlehem. He is the prince of peace. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He's the true King of kings and Lord of lords, and this is the one that we should be bowing down and worshiping. But Matthew does a little bit something different. He doesn't really talk too much about Caesar Augustus. He focuses on another king during this time, and this was King Herod, and King Herod was actually called during that time, if you remember, he was called the King of the Jews. Now, Herod is really the dark side of Christmas. I was reading some history about this guy, and I read more every year about him. He's one of my favorite Christmas characters because he's a psycho. Amen. I mean, the dude was crazy. If you read about him, you find out that he killed up to half of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious leaders of his time. He killed over 300 court officials. He had the high priest and his brother-in-law drowned in front of him for sport. He executed his wife... He executed his own mom. He executed their three sons because he was paranoid about a takeover. He had three of his uncles murdered. I mean, like, Merry Christmas once again. Amen. We, we, we love Herod. Praise God. And, and as he lay dying, the goal was that every single nobleman would be executed in Jerusalem. And we know that during Jesus' birth, he actually sent an edict out into all the land that any child under two years old would be put to death. This man was literally insane. He was a psycho, he was murderous, but he was also an excellent politician and he was a renowned architect everywhere. He built all kinds of amazing things. He was, he was a, a, a smart politician and he was able to move. And So when these guys come in from the east and they say to him, to his face, hey, where's the young man that is to be born king of the Jews? He didn't like this that much. That upset him a little bit. He was upset that they're coming in calling somebody the king of the Jews because he was the king of the Jews, he felt. And you read in this, and it says, if you read throughout the book of Matthew over and over, it's got this little funny word called behold. It's a word that's lost. I think we need to bring it back. Like if something happens and you're really enjoying it, you say, hey, behold, look, everybody. It's a word that's been lost, and even in newer translations, they take behold out a lot of times, but it is actually a very specific word, and it's used 40 times in the book of Matthew at very specific points in Jesus' life and ministry. And it's, it's, inter, it's an interjection where Matthew is basically saying, hey, look, pay attention to this because what I'm about to say is very unique and it's very important and you do not want to miss it. So Matthew would be talking, he would stop and he would say, behold, look at this. And he said, behold, 
wise men from the east came. And so he's trying to get you to pay attention to this fact that wise men from the east came because there's more to it, I would imagine, than what you recognize at first glance. Even in the beginning, you remember the first moment that, he, that Matthew says, Behold, is really at Jesus' birth because Joseph is engaged to Mary. And you know the story because, I mean, imagine you being engaged to somebody. Basically, if you're engaged to somebody at that point, it's like being married. And they were pretty particular. Like, they weren't going to have sex until they got married. And they were going to consummate it in a way where it would be publicly made known, right? And, and they were going to be very serious about this. And so Mary comes to her husband, Joseph, her betrothed husband, Joseph, and says, Hey, Joseph, guess what? I'm pregnant. And she's like, But don't worry about it. I mean, uh, it's just this is God's son. I'm still a virgin. It's all good. Well, he didn't believe her. I don't know if you would. Oh, yeah, it's good. No problem. Just overlook that. I believe you. And so he's trying to figure out, he's got two options. He can basically publicly divorce her, which would also constitute bringing other people in and Mary having a judgment and possibly being put to death for adultery. Or he has the other option of having a private divorce where he can save his reputation. He can keep Mary from being put to death. He can do a little bit behind the scenes type stuff and do a, a private divorce. But during that, while he's thinking about these things in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says this specifically. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, i got to be honest with you. I probably would have needed an angel to come to me too, all right? I probably would have needed one. I need, I need him to show up and talk to him and say, like, it's going to be all right, Joseph. Behold, an angel comes, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, notice again, Behold. The virgin shall be with, with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This prophecy being written 600 and some years before this virgin would conceive and give birth to this Emmanuel who is God with us. And you see this happening, and God is saying, hey, Joseph, pay attention. Pay attention. This is from God. This isn't just something that she conjured up. She's not a lying little 14-year-old girl. This is from God. Behold. And, and behold, this is about prophecy. This is about what God has foreordained. This is about what God has been planning for generations. This is the coming Messiah. And you are a part of something that you cannot fully understand that is far bigger than you could ever imagine. And then lastly, he says, behold. Wise men from the east came during this time. And this is something that you need to pay attention to. And notice when they first show up, he goes to consult Herod, the king of the Jews, the wise men do. And they talk to the theologians. And here's what they say in Matthew 2, 2. We just read it. They ask them, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now this is really interesting because the very first, there's, a, there's a, call, a thing in Scripture called the law of first mention. And the first question in Scripture is in Genesis 3 when God shows up to Adam in the Garden of Eden after Adam had sinned, he had felt the shame and the guilt of his sin and he had realized that he was naked and clothed him and his wife with, with, with fig coverings and they're hiding from the presence of the Lord and the Lord shows up and says, where are you? 
Now, it's not that God didn't know where, where he was. God knew exactly where Adam was, but he was trying to help Adam understand that, Adam, you're lost and you have misunderstood who I am and the God that I am, and you're hiding yourself from the very thing that you need. That was the first question, where are you? Because Adam and you and I are lost. The answer to that first question is found in the first question in the New Testament when these men say, hey, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Because the answer to our lostness as humanity is this baby that has been born king of the Jews. And he's bringing that out. And they're saying, you know what? We're lost. We're looking for something. Where is this one that has been born the king of the Jews? Because when you find Jesus, you find yourself and you find eternal life. You find the meaning that you were born. And these men, I believe they were understanding that. And we'll unpack this a little bit more because we really miss the scandal of this part. And, and, and here's the thing. Somebody was talking about this the other day. You, you got the nativity scene with the shepherds and you got the three wise men. But truly, actually, we don't know whether there was three. There could have been ten wise men. There could have been two. We don't know. We just assume there was three because they brought three gifts, right? But we also assume that they were there the very night that Jesus was born. But Scripture actually teaches, and if you look in history, Jesus was probably about a two- or three-year-old boy when they finally showed up. The shepherds were there right out of the gate, but the wise men showed up later when the toddler was in the house probably chewing all over everything and running around, you know what I'm talking about? And he was doing all that. I, I often wonder about I look at Naomi running around, I'm like, I wonder if Jesus did that kind of stuff. Like, did Jesus blow out a diaper and it go all the way up his back? You know what I'm saying? Because to me, that's sin. And I imagine that he probably didn't do that. Like, it was like the cleanest diapers you ever imagined in your life. I mean, it, I don't know. That's just some conjecture. I can't prove that this morning. So the scandal, though, is not that the manger scene is a little bit different. The real scandal is why are these guys here in the first place? Because these magi are guys from the east. They're not Jews. And not only are they not Jews, and I don't know if you understand this or not, but, but to be a non-Jew during that time, Jewish people were like, no, nah, no, nah, don't come around here. You don't get to worship God. You don't get to go in the temple. You're not one of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't get no part in this stuff. But all of a sudden, God is inviting some people from the east that were not just non-Jews, but they were magicians. They were astrologers. I don't know if you've read in the Old Testament, but God condemns magic and astrology. He says that these things are an abomination unto him. But all of a sudden he's inviting magicians and, and astrologers by a sign in the sky and bringing them into the presence of this Savior that is to be born. But when we ask ourselves, who really are these magi? What you find out is that they came from what is now modern day Iraq. They come from Babylon. And Matt unpacked this for our youth on Wednesday. But they come from what was ancient Babylon. And if you remember very specifically, this was the place that the Israelites, the Jewish people, went into exile, especially during the times Isaiah was prophesying about this coming king, this virgin who would give birth to this son. And he's prophesying all of this stuff as they're about to go into exile into Babylon. When they get to Babylon, there's a young man there named Daniel, and it says very specifically that he prayed, he fasted, he sought the Lord, he denied all of their de delicious foods and different things like that. And, and, and the King Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings, the monarchs, found that he was wiser than all of the wise men and all of the astrologers and all of the enchanters and magicians. He's surrounded by wise men, surrounded by magi, but he is the wisest of them all. 
Now you remember there's all kinds of dreams taking place and King Nebuchadnezzar's having dreams and, and, and different things are going on. And Daniel's really the only one in the whole group that can really unpack these things. And what you find out is when they finally go back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, Daniel had already... he was Because here's what you got to get. A Jew was second in command. He became second in command over all the wise men, over all the astrologers, and he started teaching the Bible, y'all. He was prophesying about the coming kingdom. And we find that he even set up centers for Jewish learning so that there was a mix among the wise men and among the astrologers where they were actually beginning to study Bible prophecy. They were studying the prophet Jeremiah. They were studying the things that Daniel had written about the dreams that he had had and the the visions that Nebuchadnezzar had had. And so they were learning the, the Bible from Daniel and he taught these prophecies. Now here's something that's really interesting. Gabriel, who actually comes to speak to Zechariah, he comes to speak to Mary about the birth of Jesus. Some 600 years earlier, Gabriel shows up to Daniel in chapter 9, and he says this in chapter 9 to Daniel. He says, No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, and 62 sevens. Now that sounds pretty deep, but Gabriel is making a precise mathematical statement about when the king shall come. Now if you put that next slide up here for me, I want you to look at this. And I've, sh- I've shared this before, but I'm always blown away by it every time I look at it. Because there was a guy who wrote a book back in the late 1800s, and he did the math on this. And he looked at the calendar and he went back, and you can see that there were 69, he's he's saying seven sevens and 62 sevens. Basically what he's saying is this, that from the time that they make the decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem until the king comes, the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler who will set up an eternal kingdom, he says there's going to be 69 sets of seven-year periods. Now, 69 sets of seven-year periods, if you do a Jewish calendar of 360 days, is 173,880 days. Now, notice, the decree goes out by Artaxerxes Longimanus in March 14th, 445 B.C. He says, I want you to go back. I want you all to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. That amount of time passes. These 69 sevens pass, and it leads to April the 6th, 32 A.D., which was the very day they had been trying to make Jesus king for a couple of years now, and he kept turning them down, and then all of a sudden he says, boy, let's go over and get me a donkey's coat. And he gets on the donkey's colt and he rides in and they lay palm branches in front of him saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His mathematical precision, he had zero error. He nailed it down to the day that they would proclaim him the true king. And he nailed it down to the day. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me. So if you go back some 600 years, I'm just imagining Daniel in the courts talking with these guys, teaching them Bible prophecy, unpacking the dreams that he had, saying, this is a prophetic word from God. I had the angel Gabriel show up to me and say there's going to be 69 sets of sevens. When you know and hear the decree going forth, you can actually map this out and have a very specific idea of when the true king is going to show up. So these men are studying these things. They're thinking about these things. They know Bible prophecy far better than we do, probably, most likely. And they're living over in Babylon during this time. He makes this precise matter mathematical statement. But here's what I want to say about these magi specifically that show up. One historian breaks it down like this. He says they were first of all, to be sure, wise men. 
Scholars of the stars found in Persia, in the land of two rivers, Iraq. And at the root of the ancient study of stars was the conviction that the microcosm of humanity was in a magnetic symbiotic relationship with a microcosm of the stars. Astronomy, they say, is the study of the law or movement of the stars, and astrology is the study of the message of the stars. Now, these two disciplines are rightly separated in our time, but they were combined in the ancient world. And because of their skill in deciphering not just the movement of the stars, but the message of the stars, they were considered wise men. Now, like I said, these men, they're studying the stars. They're astrologers, but they don't just study the movement of the stars. They believe that the stars have a message in them. But we, we learned, just like I said before, that they were non-Jews, and this type of practice is an occultic type of practice. It's condemned by God. He, wouldn't, he, he would not even allow this. He would not accept this. So what is going on during this time? And you would, you would think, what's going on, Matthew? Because Matthew is writing to Jewish people, trying to convince people that, Jesus is the real king of the Jews, but yet he's bringing weird people in. We talked about how a couple weeks ago in his lineage, he's bringing in all these non-Jewish women who were posing as prostitutes. One of them was a legitimate prostitute, and she was in the line of Jesus. And you're saying, Matthew, why would you bring these people in? Why are you bringing these magi in? Why are you even pointing that out? That's like a, that's like a blemish on this holy moment of the Son of God being born. You're bringing magicians and astrologers to come and hang out with the Holy One, the Son of God. And one, Matthew's saying, well, one, I'm telling it because it happened and I ain't a liar and I don't wash over everything like we do in our culture. Two, not only did it happen, but it's revealing God's heart. And we need to understand God's heart. That when God calls now the world through this Son of God, this divine one that's to be born, He's not just calling the religious elite. He's not just calling those that were born of a certain ethnicity. He is going out and calling all people from everywhere. Jews, Greeks, Africans. He's calling tax collectors. He's calling prostitutes and sex traffickers. He's calling Romans. He's calling the religious elite. He is calling all people to this salvation that He is offering for throughout all the world regardless of their ethnicity, their race, their background, the sin in their past, what their family line look like he's reaching out to everyone and Matthew's saying he's calling these guys for a specific purpose because he wants you to understand something. He wants you to see something deeper about what is really going on. And Matthew's saying, don't you even remember my story, boys? Don't you remember how bad you hated me? Matthew was a tax collector. He was hated. He was rejected. He wasn't allowed to eat with his family anymore. He wasn't allowed to go worship on Sunday. They would have had some of the, some of the greeting team out at the door saying, buddy, you ain't welcome in here. As long as you're going to collaborate with Rome and steal our money, we ain't letting you in the church house. He would have been kicked out, but all of a sudden Jesus shows up and says, hey, Matthew, I want, I want to eat with you, bro. I want to eat with you. And so he brings his friends who are sinners and his friends other friends who are tax collectors and Jesus sits down and eats with them and the Pharisees come in and say hey why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors and Jesus said it's not the righteous that need help but he said it's the sick it's not it's not the well that need help it's the sick that need help and he said I've not come to call the righteous but I've come to call sinners to repentance I'm inviting people that to you may be an, an abomination but I'm inviting them into my presence so that they can see who I truly am because I want to bring them to a place of repentance where they change their mind about who this God of the universe is and they see his beauty and they behold his glory and they experience his love for themselves and experience this salvation that he offers He's trying to invite everybody in. He's trying to open the door. 
And so notice that on this journey, God always starts the journey. When it was with Matthew, Jesus said, Hey, Matthew, I want to eat with you, man. When it was with Mary and Joseph, God sends an angel to initiate the fact that, Hey, you, you may not chose this, but I've chosen you. And I want to do this in your life. With the shepherds, the shepherds weren't looking for anything to show up and all of a sudden you're just tending sheep out in the field and some angels show up and start singing songs in the sky. I mean, can you imagine that? And then with the Magi, God chooses to set up a plan with Daniel in the beginning to teach these men year after year for 600 years that they're looking in the sky for a sign. They're looking in the sky for a sign. And so 900 miles these men travel. And I don't know about you, 900 miles is a long way, y'all. I'm about to go down to Florida here in a little bit, and we've been talking about should we drive or should we fly. I like to fly because driving nine, ten hours is hard. And that's like 300 miles going 75 miles an hour. 900 miles on a camel? It took them two years. Two years on a camel to get over there. Would you do that? That's two years of your life. Two years of your life that you're riding on a camel between them two humps where they store water that can't be comfortable. And they're riding two years, 900 mile journey to get to this because they saw a star in the sky. And when they come, they say, where's this prayer? They don't say, hey, where's the book y'all got? They don't say, hey, where's the monument? Where's the temple? They say, where is this person, this baby that is born? Because we've seen his star in the east. And let's talk about that star a little bit. Because I think about stuff and I'm thinking, you know, people read these stories and they read the Bible as, like as, if, as if it's a myth or something like that. But historically, you can study, like, for example, the star. And, and there, there, there are so many, different, so many different ideas behind what was actually going on. And there, there's a lot of different ones about there, there were some There were some very strange astronomical uh, type of anomalies during that time. The one that I think is most interesting, and I just sort of had, have adopted it as what is the one that they're talking about. But if you look at it, in June 17th, 2 BC, what happened? June 17th, 2 BC, you had Jupiter and Venus merging together in the constellation Leo. The constellation Leo, they knew, had to do with the Jewish people. Uh, Jupiter was considered the star of a king's birth. Venus was considered the star of fertility, so it had to do with, once again, a king being born. But what was interesting is those two merged right in the constellation of Leo, which is a lion, and they merged with a star, which was a very bright star called Regulus at that specific time. And Regulus was the king's stars. So you have two king stars and, and fertility going on. And basically the stars were lining up to say not just the king, but the king of all kings is being born right now. And those two things merged, and these men would have looked up in the sky and saying, boys, we're looking at Daniel's prophecy. Time has passed. It's getting that time. It's getting close. And now we see it. The king of kings is going to be born. They see that star, and they're moved in their hearts, and they say, boys, it's going to be a long journey, but it's worth finding out. Are you willing to waste two years of your life? And they're thinking, well, it ain't going to be a waste if it's actually true. And some people I wonder, are you willing to take the things that God is doing to draw you into His presence? God drew me in some strange ways in the beginning of this thing. But I'm telling you, when I responded to it and when I began to move deeper, God started to unveil things to me. Because when God draws you, see, that's just the beginning of the revelation. You can't stop there. You don't stop just saying, well, I know there is a God. You need to know this God personally. 
And he's drawing you into a place not where you just know about biblical prophecy. He wants you to meet the man. And he's drawing these men into where they can meet him. And so what's very interesting is that if you look back in the day, there's another Old Testament scholar. He says this. He says, when Moses was leading Israel through the desert toward the promised land, he encountered another wicked king who, like Pharaoh, tried to destroy Moses and God's people. His name was Balak, king of Moab. And he summoned from the east a famous seer named Balaam who was to use his arts against Moses and Israel and curse them. Balaam was a non-Israelite, a cultic visionary, a practitioner of enchantment who in Jesus' day would be called a magi. So the thing about it is, is if you want to see the beauty of the New Testament, you need to study and unpack the Old Testament as well. Because Balak says, you know what, I'm trying to curse these Israelites. These guys are taking over. I'm afraid of what they may do. Hey, Balaam, he's a wise man living down in the east, an enchanter, an astrologer, and he knows that he has supernatural power. He calls him up to curse the Israelites, and Balaam looks down over the Israelites, and he gets a vision from God, and he cannot curse them. He's unable to do it because God shows him something. And in Numbers 24, here's what it says. Balaam took up this oracle, and he said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Baor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes, wide open and notice what he said I see him but not now I behold him but not near a star shall come out of Jacob a scepter shall arise out of Israel so Balaam comes out of the east just like the Magi do he uses supernatural arts just like the Magi do and when he shows up he's predicting the coming of Jesus and he predicts specifically a star that shall come out of Jacob and so you see this history of these wise men, these magi being set up for this moment that this king would, 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 would arrive and God would reveal him on the scene. And all of these things are going on in this moment. And they go on this 900-mile journey. And he's basically walking them through the first level of the house because, like I said, it's, it's one thing. Nature and experience are, are two good things to lead you to God. You can look out at the sky you can look at the stars and you can say, man, there's a designer made this stuff. This, this isn't by chance. There's, there's a designer. There's a creator. There's a God. And people will say, you know, I, I believe there's a God. I'm not sure who He is, but, but I believe there's a God. I can see it in creation. I see it all around me. I see it in the eyes of my children. I, I, I realize that there's a God behind this. And, and then you can even have experience or maybe moments where you feel like, man, this is divine. This is something. Like they see those stars in the sky and they're like, okay, like this is, this is something crazy. This is an experience that marks your life, that changes you. But see, that's just the first floor of the house. Nature and experience can lead you to this belief in God. But Christianity is about knowing this God specifically. His plan of salvation, what He has said, His love, how He's designed you, His call upon your life. Knowing this specifically. So this star is drawing them, but they're just at the first level of the house. Because ultimately this star wants to talk, take them to the very place where this person is being born so that they can know Him specifically. That's where God's drawing all of us. He's drawing us into a place where we go beyond just the things that we've seen and the fact that we know there's a God. Because I'm telling you, people come into church week after week, year after year, and they know there is a God, but they do not know this God. And He's drawing you into something deeper. He said, I want to know you intimately. I want you to know me intimately. 
And so they show up, and when they show up, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 through 8, the Magi come into Herod. They say, where is he is to be born king of the Jews? And it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, he don't want to worship Jesus. He wants to murder baby Jesus. As we know from his history, he don't even care to kill his own mama. Like this man is ruthless. And he doesn't want any competition. He wants no rivalries. So he tells them to go on and come into this place. And here's what's so interesting. Herod wants him dead, but the religious leaders of the day, when the Magi come in, they quote Scripture. They say, where's this guy supposed to be born? Oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Well, we saw his star in the east. It's time for it to happen. Nobody goes down to Bethlehem. See, it's one thing to have Bible knowledge. It's another thing to have the Spirit of God working in your heart, drawing you to act upon your Bible knowledge. It's a very big difference because many people have Bible knowledge. Talk to people all the time. They can quote scriptures. Well, the Bible says this. The Bible says this. But acting upon your scriptural knowledge is far more important. I don't know if these guys are scared to death of Herod. Maybe they're afraid of being put to death themselves for going and checking it out. But if I knew scripture and I had that promise in my heart and some guys traveled 900 miles on a camel and show up and say, we think he's born right now. We saw the star in the sky. And they say, well, we know he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. If it was me, I'd be going down to Bethlehem. It ain't but about 5.8 miles from where they were. I mean, you could walk that. That's from here to my house. We can get over there in a matter of no time, but they don't go. You can be a religious person and be a person that goes to church and goes through the motion, but never actually acts upon your knowledge and moves deeper into this Jesus. And what he's calling us in is past that. He's calling us in to this intimate meeting. And so it says in, in verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. And there's that word behold again. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now notice, the, the scripture here is implying that they saw the star in the east. They saw the, um, the merging of, of possibly Jupiter and Venus. And then also they saw it connect with Regulus in the constellation Leo. And they thought, oh man, the king of kings is going to be born. So they took out toward Jerusalem. And it implies that maybe they lost the star during that time. And you know what happens? Sometimes when you're on a journey of faith, you see something for a moment and then it's gone. And you're wondering, man, should I even continue to pursue this? And, but see, that's what faith is. They continued on this 900-mile journey even when they didn't see the star for a moment. 
And so when they get there, they talk to Herod and they're trying to figure out where to go, where this baby's going to be born. And after they talk to Herod, they walk outside and they look toward Bethlehem and all of a sudden they see it once again and the Bible says that they are overjoyed. It's a very specific word. It's a strong word. It's the kind of joy you had if you just bought a lottery ticket and found out you hit the jackpot. You know what I'm talking about? Like that kind of joy. I just turned into a multimillionaire. Like if you had maybe cancer and all of a sudden you get a clean bill of health, a doctor's report where you don't have it anymore, and, and, and it's clean. It is a joy that says, you know what, that 900 miles, it was worth it. It was worth it. Joy overflowing in their heart. And the star comes, and I don't know what's going on at this point, because see, other scholars say, well, no, it was, it was some, some, some Korean and some Chinese astronomers actually said that there was a supernova during that time, and it was moving, so they would have seen it moving at that point over the house. And people say that. And then other guys say, well, you know, throughout Scripture, angels are called stars. And so at that point, it could have very likely been an angel manifesting itself in the sky because it turns out they were doing that a lot at that time. And, and he began to move over the house. Either way, God's at work. Either way, God's at work. Either way, God's doing something outside of the norm to draw these men to the most important time in history. And it says in Matthew 2.11, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child. And like I said, this is two or three-year-old little baby Jesus. And I imagine, you know, if he's anything like Naomi, he just screams as loud as he can when they come in. <laughs> Maybe he did that. I don't know. Maybe he was overjoyed too. But you start to imagine this little baby, the king of the world, the king of the universe, the creator, a two or three-year-old, playing with a toy maybe. I don't know. And they come in, and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. These men from Babylon, non-Jews, from the east, astrologers, magicians, in the occult. But when they see this boy, they say, man, this is really what we've been waiting for. Everything in our life to this point doesn't matter. This is everything. They bow down and they worship that baby boy. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They make that journey to meet the real king, and they were taught by their fathers, 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 all the way back to Daniel. Taught Bible prophecy. Now, I thought about this because I think to myself, man, you know what? We talk about our kids all the time. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. But you know what? I want it, I want it to be that if he extends his stay and we, when we hang out here a little bit longer than usual, that when I die, I've got children's children's children that we ministered to. And they knew the Bible so well that when Jesus shows up, they're willing to do anything to go out to meet him. That it's in their heart because they had fathers, fathers, and mothers, mothers, and mothers, and grandmothers. That all of it, that our great, great, great grandchildren know the Bible so well that they see all the signs. That they know this king. And these men had it in their hearts long enough to say, I'm willing to take a 900 mile journey to get to this place. And when we go, we ain't going empty handed. And I imagine they bring, they bring gold, they bring frankincense, they bring myrrh. And this is very unique because I imagine also... If you remember when they, when they sacked the temple in Jerusalem, the Babylonians, they took all the gold out. And you remember like King Darius, he was throwing a party one night, getting hammered with all of his buddies, drinking out of the goblets 
the golden goblets that they took from the temple. And I imagine these men knowing that story from Daniel and saying, you know what, we need to take some of this gold back to its rightful owner. I don't know, that's just my conjecture again. But what if they took some of that gold that had been stolen from the temple originally and said it's time for us to take this back to the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords, because this gold was given because Jesus is a king. But see, they also gave him frankincense, and frankincense was mixed in, in, in the incense at the altar that they would burn, and before they would go into the holy, most holy place, they would burn this incense, and frankincense would be in it because Jesus is a priest, and a priest needs his incense. But then lastly, myrrh is like an embalming fluid. It's used whenever you'd wrap a body up. And the reason they give him that myrrh is because Jesus is not just a king, he's not just a priest, but he is a sacrifice. And he is the sacrifice. This boy that was born is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And every single one of us, we come into this position just like these magi, that we've, we've done things honestly. I know it's not a very fashionable word, but do you know that apart from God, we're all an abomination. I mean, we, we don't have anything good in us, but this God loves us so much. The scripture says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the scripture goes on to say, and he, he came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, you magicians, you astrologers. You people that don't even worship the true God, I've come to condemn you finally. No, he said, no, I've come to save you. And I'll use whatever I have to use in order to draw you into my presence so you can know that I'm the true King of kings and Lord of lords and I love you. And I want you to experience salvation. And these men who were far from God were some of the first worshipers of this baby Jesus. They had been cut off. They have been ostracized by those around him. And here's the thing. I, I mean, most of the time you have church on Sunday, you, you invite a lot of Christians in. Probably most everybody is saved in here, I would imagine. But maybe you could be in that category like I was talking about earlier where, where really you, you know about Jesus, but you just, you just feel this disconnect in your heart. And, and I just want to urge you, you know, Jesus is inviting you to come a little bit closer. He's saying, I want, I want something more with you. I want something deeper with you. I want you to bring me your heart and lay down your heart for me and bow down and worship me because I'm the one that can give you that peace that you've been longing for. I'm the one that can bring you that forgiveness of sin, that shame where Adam hid because he was lost. I can erase that shame. I can deal with that guilt. I can give you peace. I can give you forgiveness of sins. I can heal your broken heart. I can give you a new mind. I can set you free from this addiction. I can transform your life. I know it doesn't feel like it right now, and I know you've tried some things, but I'm telling you, if you will just follow me, if you will believe in me and follow me, I can change your heart. I can change who you are. I can make you a new creation. And it's a journey that we're all walking on. It is. I'm not saying any of us are perfect yet, but when we meet this Jesus, He does something in our hearts that gives us peace to let us know that we may fall several times, but this King, He's going to pick us back up. He's going to help us. He's going to put us back together. And he's going to come back and he's going to restore this kingdom. And we're going to live eternally with him. And that is the very best news. And that's why we sing he's worthy of it all. That's why we bow down and worship and we give him our hearts. But you've got to ask yourself, the thing about Jesus is, is there's really no middle ground. You don't get to meet him on his terms or on your terms. You have to meet him on his terms. Because he's, either he's the true son of God or he's not. 
Either he really is God in flesh and the Savior of the world, or he's not. And so there is no middle ground. It's not enough to say, well, I believe in God. God revealed himself by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And he calls everybody everywhere to repent and believe in him. And that's the simple gospel message. And this child being born is the hope of the world because it lets us know that no matter how bad things get here, he's going, he came this first time, and guess what? He's going to come back again and restore all things. Amen. I want you to bow your head with me this morning.